Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 means we're coming to the end of our study of Philippians, but we're also coming to the end of our study that we've entitled Be the Church. And we're at the last facet of our study in this chapter. Chapter 4 is going to have two today and then next week, and then we'll be done. And this is the last, what I call a facet of the Be the Church series, and it's called Be the Church to Call Home. When I use the word home, I mean a lot more than a structure. And so it's not just a church building. It's not just an address. That, there's a big difference between a church house and a church home. You know, a house is a structure. It's a place we can get in out of the rain it's, and out of the, the weather. A home is a place of safety, of peace, of love, and of growth. Every one of us longs to have a home. God has placed it within our hearts that we want to, to have a place to call home. So we need to be a church family that comes, as we've already said together, to, to be a home. Nobody wants to be in a family where there's not peace and there's not contentment. We want to be a part of a church family. We want to be part of a, a family at home uh, in our own biological families that are places of peace and safety. And so I know your prayer today is to make peace and unity at Ridgecrest a priority. And this text will give us really practical ways to do that. The Bible is very practical. We don't have to make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. That's the way it was designed by the Holy Spirit. In the local church at Philippi, they were not a place called home. They were in conflict. And they had, in fact, had a lot of disunity surrounded by two women, which we've mentioned this before, but just to remind you, that's basically now the point of the text today, that Yodia and Syntyche, these two ladies, had some sort of a disagreement which had essentially divided the church into two significant groups, and it was an issue that was not doc- doctrinal. It was not on doctrine that they were disputing because Paul never mentions what the dispute is, and he would have come down and said this is the proper doctrine if, we, if it had been something essentially worthy of having a dispute over, which is our doctrines and beliefs. Instead, it was, it was preferential. It was preference. And so he gives them the, the way home to make this dispute uh, less severe and to give practical steps to peacemaking. That's why it's been preserved in the Scriptures for us today, because we need this in our own relationships. And God is calling all of us today to do our part and to say, I want to be a peacemaker. And this is beautiful because it does work when you leave here in your homes where you're, at, you're staying at night home. So if you're in, like many families, and that is you're pressing up against the holiday season where you're really not really excited about getting together necessarily as a family because there's conflict this sermon is very practical in dealing with that kind of stress and, con- and interpersonal conflict as well. It was given within the context of a ch- local church, though. And so we need to understand if we're going to be in the will of God, then we, as followers of Christ, need to be striving to promote unity. And let me just say, this is not something that I've seen that is a problem in Ridgecrest, at Ridgecrest Baptist Church pray, uh, in a praiseworthy way in a way that I give God glory for, it, it's clear to me the church right now is unified. 
There's no significant disunity at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. So the preparation that we're giving today is is basically just to lay forth um, ideas that would prevent future conflicts. And that's a lot of what preaching should be is preventative, not necessarily addressing something that's already problematic in the church. And I see this sermon as a vitamin, not an antibiotic. You know, you take antibiotics when there's infection. You take a vitamin when you're healthy to continue to be healthy. This church, this sermon is a vitamin, not, and not an antibiotic. So within that context, I just want to let you know, I'm not aiming this at any particular person or group or problem in the church. And I praise God for that. And I'm so thankful when I got here that the church was not in, in turmoil. But, the, but obviously we all, and I know your heart, I've already heard your heart. You want to keep it that way. And we all, we want to have the unity that we have today as we move forward and to be the church to call home for the next generation. And we can't, we can't just be content that we have a place to call home. We have to have a desire to reach out to people that need a church home, like I said, and they're not going to want to come here if there's division. So we have huge motivation to want to do our part and whatever God is calling us to do. And so this is the, the, the nature of the text this morning. So follow with me as we read, as I read, uh, beginning at verse 2 of chapter 4. And just listen to the passion that Paul brings to this disagreement in the church. He says in verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared, they've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Ultimately, what I just read is a call to followers of Christ like yourself that are born-again Christians into the world of being like Christ. Call to spiritual maturity. This was written to church, to a local church full of believers who were born again, who were not able to get along with one another. You know, oftentimes I talk to people about church conflict and they assume the people involved are not saved. You hear almost a default to they just need to get saved. That may be true in many cases, but in this case... Paul clearly said these women were believers and they were in conflict with each other. 
He said, look, these women have struggled side by side with me in spreading the gospel. And their names are in the book of life. Talking about the Lamb's book of life. And they were saved, but they were not mature. They were not acting as mature believers. They thought they were right, but they were wrong. They thought they had rights, but the only right they had was to sacrifice and give up their preference in order to bring unity to the church. And, you know, the problem is often not people are not saved. The problem is people are not mature Christians. You ought to have a desire. I mean, you, you ought to say it today, you know, the first application is, Lord, I, I, I want to become a, a truly mature follower of Christ, somebody who actually acts Christ-like, somebody who actually not just says that I want to be Christ-like, but actually is doing, making decisions and actually submitting to the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit in such a way that you are becoming a true follower of Christ that looks like a Christian, that acts like a Christian, that acts like Jesus. So that's the first application is that we have a responsibility to assume um, the, the need to be mature in Christ, to seek peace in our relationships. We have a responsibility to be peacemakers. The greater context of this conflict goes beyond just a dispute in the church because what was actually taking place was the church was so divided that they were not able to stand against the Roman Empire's persecution, against the demonic attacks they were undergoing through the Roman Empire. So it was actually not just the churches now in dispute. The church is actually becoming weak relative to the Roman Empire that was beginning to cause persecution on churches. So what they needed was to stand together. They needed strength from unity by coming to the church and having the ability to be strengthened when they come to, came to church. They had false teachers that were creeping into the church. We've talked about them called Judaizers. They were preaching a false gospel that was said that you can actually follow the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, and you have to, in fact, in order to be able to have eternal life, and that you can't just put your faith in Christ and be born again. It was a false gospel, and Paul called them out on it. They needed to unify behind the true gospel. They needed to unify behind the persecution. And they were doing the exact opposite, and it was weakening their ability to function as a church. And Paul had already told them uh, in the past what to do. But notice he says in verse 2 uh, that he says, first of all, and he calls them by name. And that was serious. And secondly, he used the verb urge. I urge you, Euodia. And then he turns and says, I urge you, Syntyche. And by using the word urge twice, he was placing emphasis on it. As strong as he could urge them to do this. And then he uses the phrase, in the Lord. He said, be at peace with one another in the Lord. The phrase in the Lord harkens back to what he has already said in his whole purpose of writing Philippians. And I think it's well worth reading again. What, when he says in the Lord, here's what he means. Go back to chapter 1. Flip back to chapter 1 in verse 27. So when you look at the phrase in verse 2, in the Lord, you have to understand what he means is found all the way back to his original point, starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what he says. 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what he means by in the Lord. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For you, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. They were about to go through a difficult season of persecution, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Verse two, excuse me, chapter two, verse one in the Lord means, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul means In chapter 4, when he tells them, I urge you in the Lord. He'd already told them what type of attitude to embrace. So Paul is saying, look, we've got responsibility to one another here. And ultimately, we've got responsibility to our Lord Jesus. Remember, the Lord himself had called for peacemaking in his own Sermon on the Mount in Matthew Chapter 5, Jesus preached, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and the daughters of God. So throughout the Bible, God is a God of peacemaking, and the, the gospel itself is peace, and we need, therefore, to be peacemaking people. I think every church is basically like a, a locomotive, like a, a, a train locomotive. The thing about trains is they take a long time to get up to speed, and they take a long time to stop when they've been running. But when they ever do stop, uh, it, it takes a great deal of power and energy to get them going again. Paul was saying you need to either be adding power to the church, uh, or he was saying you need to be adding power to the church. And I think the question we all need to be asking ourselves right now is, am I a person who adds momentum to the locomotive of the Ridgecrest, or am I someone that has a tendency to slow the momentum? And be praying, Lord, help me to be a, a multiplier of the Great Commission at Ridgecrest. So Paul begins to tell them, at, you know, in chapter 4, after he's made this statement, you're in the Lord, he, he gives them concluding practical ways to deal with personal conflict. And we all have this. Most of our conflict in life is, is not outside of other people. Most of our conflict and stress and worry and anxiety in life deals with some sort of disagreements and conflict we have with other people. So he begins to lay out what I call practical peacemaking steps. He gives them at least seven through verse 9, and I want to share these with you this morning and ask you to take this note sheet home and to begin to practice the 
discipline of peacemaking in your own life and see how biblical steps to peacemaking can actually work. It's God's plan for peacemaking between you and other people. And the first of these biblical steps to peacemaking is found in verse 3. Number one is you have to place yourself under the influence of peacemakers. You want a place to call home, and I know you do at this church, then you have to place yourself under the influence of peacemakers. In verse 3, he lays out a very clear directive, and that is the church needs to be in mediation of this conflict, and the people that are involved in it need to be listening to the church leadership. He says, I want to, he calls out a person, he says, uh, my true companion, get involved in this. The true companion is most likely Epaphroditus. In chapter 2, we found out this guy named Epaphroditus had brought a financial gift to Paul from this local church. Paul's in prison in Rome. And as a way of encouragement, Epaphroditus had delivered a financial gift and had also explained what was going on back in Philippi, which is in Greece. Paul's in Rome. They're over in Greece. Local church, just like us. Paul had planted that church, and the church was 10 years old, and Epaphroditus was explaining all of the dynamics that are going on in that church, and most likely he's the true companion mentioned here. He also mentions Clement. Who's Clement? Most likely he was the pastor, or one of the pastors, one of the church leaders. So he says to the, the two ladies, listen to these church leaders. Most of the time when we have church conflict, people just go to another church. But he calls them here to listen to the leadership of the church. He calls the church itself to therefore enter in to the mediation process. And all of the church, in verse 3, is to be guided by a biblical, what I would call a biblical worldview. And I use the phrase biblical worldview, which simply means using the principles of the Bible to make decisions. And this is important because there is an opposite view called the secular worldview. The biblical world, the, the secular worldview says you've got to win this argument. You've got to come out on top. You've got to prove that you're right and the other person's wrong. You've got to get your way. The biblical worldview says defer to that other person and serve them, as per chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Philippians. So the application is place yourself under the influence of people that are living by the Scripture. Place yourself under the influence of people that are living out the Bible with a biblical worldview. Seek counselors who are calling for reconciliation and forgiveness but placing a priority on the Great Commission and the spread of the gospel over and against preference. And I hope you're listening because it is very possible for us to listen to the wrong people in our life through social media, through television, through false uh, counseling. So pick your, pick your influencers with great care. And we see this, um, verse 4 is quoted. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's, it's often quoted. Again, I say rejoice. What does he, why does he say that here? Within the context of resolving conflict in a church, why does he mention that here? What does rejoicing in the Lord have to do with resolving a conflict between you and somebody else or between people in general? 
And the answer is that if you will think long and hard about the big picture of your life, if you begin to really step back and look at the big picture, realizing what Christ has done for you, then you will begin to see that the conflict which you think is so important in your life is actually just not that important. The phrase rejoice in the Lord is a step that I would call number two. You have to daily apply the gospel to your life. You have to daily apply the gospel. You've got to step back and look at your situation within the context of being somebody who has been born again. And I would encourage you to take a deep breath and to say to yourself, Self, you've been personally saved by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love was at the cost of him dying on the cross for you. But he did that willingly. When you did not deserve itself, you didn't earn it, you weren't smarter, you weren't wiser, you weren't better than anybody else. Jesus loved you when you were unconditional, when you were undeserving of his unconditional love. And now you have a relationship with your heavenly Father that God is now your heavenly Father, a personal, intimate relationship with Him. And He's given the Holy Spirit of God to comfort you and to stay in your heart and never leave you where you would ever be alone in life. And I have self now a relationship with the true and living God, and therefore I need to give up my preference the way that Christ gave up His life for me. I have the promises of Scripture self. I've got all of the Bible that tells me that I can seek first the kingdom of God and all things in life will be taken care of for me. Therefore, I rejoice in the Lord and again I say rejoice self. That's what he means when he says rejoice in the Lord. And that's a habit that we need to practice. One of the one of the best things you can learn to do is to, is to speak to yourself the gospel and how it applies to your life on a day-to-day basis. And it works hand-in-hand with the third and fourth steps. Verse 5 says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. A gentle spirit is a product of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is the third step to resolving conflict in your life. You, number three, you must daily release control of your life to the Holy Spirit. And I'm speaking to people here today that are followers of Christ, just like this passage directs. People who have consented to the Lordship of Christ in their life. They've bowed the, the will of their life, their mind, their soul, their body to Christ, and He's Save them from their sins. And when you do that, you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in us. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happens one time in your life if you're saved. You can only be baptized in the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. But we have to learn to be filled by the Holy Spirit over and over on a regular basis. When a follower of Christ needs to be in control or be controlled by God's Spirit, that means they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. What that means is you've got to pray a prayer. How do you get filled by the Holy Spirit? You pray a prayer. It says something along these lines. Dear Father, I'm in need 
of being controlled by your Holy Spirit. I'm asking you to take control of me right now. Dear God, please allow the Holy Spirit to fill me and take my will into submission. Let my heart be controlled by the Spirit. Let my mind be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let my mouth be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let my body be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Father, I want to ask you to go ahead of me. And and before I act in my own person, let your spirit guide me and, and, and direct my thoughts and my actions and my motivations so that you'll be glorified in all I do. You pray a prayer like that, and I would encourage you to pray that prayer regularly, maybe daily. But certainly when you feel your anger is getting up, you know what I'm talking about when you, you realize you're starting to get angry. That's when you need to realize you need the control of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to pray a prayer like that, and you mean it. What the production or the byproduct or the result of that prayer is a gentle spirit. Bible says in Proverbs that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh answer stirs up anger. So we've got to learn, and it is a learned practice, letting the Holy Spirit go before us to create a gentle spirit in us. You've got to want that. That's what I mean by saying I really want to be a mature Christian because these two ladies... In their heart of hearts, they were not allowing the Holy Spirit to be in control of their life because it was more important to them to be right than it was to let the Holy Spirit be controlling their lives. So Paul comes uh, right behind that and says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near is a term, and it has two different meanings to it. One meaning is that he said the Lord is near in terms of his eminence. The omnipresence of the Lord means whatever you do, whatever you think, whatever you, wherever you're at, Jesus sees what you do. And that ought to affect how you live. It's funny to me. It's kind of funny, but it, it, and I know most of the time people are just joking, but sometimes I don't think they're joking. Like I'll show up somewhere and the people will be like, whoa, hey, whoa, here comes the preacher. You better watch what you say or do. And, you know, and that happens to me like all the time. And it's it's a funny thing. You know, and people, by the way, and they change if you ever they they're somewhere and people are like, so what do you do? Like, I'll be I'll be working out. I'm always trying to meet somebody working out that I can invite to church or, you know, and, and get a relationship where you could get them in a place where you could share the gospel with them, obviously. To see if they're unsaved and all those the things that we need to be doing in our personal evangelism. But a lot of times, and you'll, you'll meet a, a guy working out and lifting weights, and they're talking, they're cussing, and they're saying all these things. And all they're like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm the pastor at Ridgecrest Baptist Church." And they're like, "Whoa, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to be cussing in front of you." You know, they begin to immediately change. If people feel that way about the presence of a pastor, how much more should a follower of Christ feel that way about the, the, the fact that Jesus is right here? It amazes me that we have this sense that God is far off, but he's not. He's imminent. So that's largely what it means. But beyond that, it has a, a, a second primary meaning equally important, and that is... 
the judgment of, the, of your life and my life that is going to occur at the point of death is near. Life is short. We have to live as if we understand that we're going to give an account of our life. So whether we live to be 100 or live to be 30, the fact is that death is not far off for any of us in terms of a, a whole perspective of eternity. Our death needs to be um, something we realize that at that point we're going to have to give an account and we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus as believers, not for salvation, but for stewardship. And so the fourth step in peacemaking is you have to fundamentally orient your life to eternity. The major difference between a secular worldview and a biblical worldview is time. People that are following a secular worldview are thinking about this life almost only. People that are to be followers of Christ are called to a biblical worldview which orients our life to eternity. My sons were coming through school. They'd have these huge exams. And I would, one of the, the, the things that I just always drove home with them was you make your grade on the exam the night before or several nights before the exam so that by the time you walk into the exam, the grade is already over with. People don't understand that. Students think, I hope I do good on this test today. They come into the, the exam saying, I hope I do good Today, and I would always tell my students, your, your grade has been determined the second you walk in this door. Before you pick up your pencil, the, the test is over. A good student would come into a class and say, I'm going to make an A on this exam because I've already done the preparation for it. The Christian life is no different much as we hate taking tests, in a sense, there is an examination process that we need to be preparing for now. And that is the meaning of the, the, the phrase, the Lord is near. Living for eternity is hard. That's why we need to have prayer. That's why verse 6 follows right after this. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So you have to, the six principles. You've got to release the power of prayer in your life. Prayer is to be founded upon thanksgiving. It harkens back to our salvation. Prayer changes everything. I could go on and on about this, folks. When we were in Ecuador, I don't know if I said this the day I was here. If I did, I apologize for reiterating it or restating it, but I do think it's worth reiterating. And that is when I was, we were in a bind by the way, these Ecuadorian pastors, they often would stand up to pray. I was in Ecuador on a mission trip. So all these pastors, 20 pastors, they would stand up to pray. But when we found out that everything had been shut down and the roads were closed and there was no food, we didn't know what we were going to eat and we didn't know how we were going to get home, without even thinking about it, all of those pastors had a time of prayer and they all, one by one, but... All of them almost at the same time got down on their knees and prayed. There's power in prayer. It changed our situation. What prayer does, and sometimes our prayers are not answered the way we want them to be, but prayer always changes 
the situation because prayer oftentimes is used by God just to align ourselves under the will of God. Prayer oftentimes causes us to get our own priorities right, realizing that God is the authority over our life. And I ask you just to make prayer for Ridgecrest a daily part of your life. Pray for the peace at Ridgecrest. Pray that you'd be a peacemaker at Ridgecrest. Pray that you'd have the strength of God to grow in Christ. And then focus on goodness. Verse 7, he says, all these things, excuse me, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true and honorable and right and pure, lovely, of good repute, any excellence and things worthy of praise, you've got to dwell on these things. This is the sixth step. Number six says you've got to feed on a consistent diet of goodness. I mean, you are going to be bent toward having that bitterness in your heart and mulling over conflict in your heart if you're not dwelling on the right things. So what you have to do is you have to, first of all, you've got to get in the Word of God. The Word of God is true. Jesus said, sanctify my disciples, Father, because I want to sanctify them through your Word because your Word is truth, subjective truth. And it tells us all these other things, but beyond just the Word of God, you've got to starve out discontentment with things like worship music at home. You've got to starve out discontentment with listening to a Sunday school teacher teach a lesson and being part of a, an adult Bible study. You've got to starve out discontentment by making church a priority in your life. And that's really the, the last item in verse 9. Paul says, all these things that I have modeled for you, keep doing those. And that's the last step. Step number seven, you've got to daily practice the basic disciplines of the Christian life. You don't drop out of church. You don't change churches. You have to continue to practice the disciplines God has taught you. And I just want to encourage you to put the kind of discipline against your life. Um, it's just what I would call basic Christianity. A daily quiet time. A daily prayer time. That means you and God, where you're reading your Bible and you're reading a passage of Scripture and it's quiet and there's no electronics going on in the background, and you're focused on the Scriptures, and God is speaking to you through the Scriptures, and then you're praying to God. This is the discipline of being involved at a church where it's a priority. You come not because it's convenient, but you come because you discipline yourself to come as a priority in life. And so as we close, I know this church is special to you, and it's special to me, and it's the bride of Christ. And so the call on our life as followers of Christ today is to be peacemakers. And our heart should be for this. Our heart should be this because we want to see other people that are in turmoil, that are not saved, have a place to call home. So I'm asking you today, as, our, as, as we have our time of invitation in just a moment, that make a decision between you and God, and that is, God, I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker so that I can reach out and do my part so that unsaved and unchurched people that are in turmoil outside of the walls of this house will be able to come in here and say, this is now my church home, that I found a home here, and I want to do my part to make that possible. So you have a desire 
to bring about peace here. But more importantly, I think we should have a desire to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 13, listen to what it says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, that was you and that was me. We were formerly far off. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. How can we possibly not seek the peace of God with others when Christ has become our own peace? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and let's enter a time of decision. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.